today on Ag News Daily. We have to tackle the major problem, which is that agriculture is the least digitised industry in the world. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today is uh, we're coming up on the end of June. It is June 29th, 2017. I am Mike Pearson, a co-host here of Ag News Daily, and we have something very exciting today. For the first time in the history of the Ag News Daily podcast, we have brought on a guest host, and I am joined today by one of the smartest people in the world of agriculture, and her name, and she's familiar to a lot of you, is Elaine Cub. Elaine, how are you doing today? Well, now I'm really worried about living up to that billing. I mean, I was worried about living up to Delaney's post here as a, as a host of this great podcast, but now I have a whole other thing to be worried about. Ah, people don't listen to me. Um, <laughs> no, this is this is great. So, Elaine, you are on. We, we've talked to you several times as our market analyst and having a, you give your thoughts on the, the state of uh, the world of agriculture. But today... We've got John Delaney is off uh, learning at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange headquarters in Chicago, and you and I are going to talk about the news, and we're going to talk about the markets, bit of an exciting day in the markets, and then we're going to have an interesting conversation with a woman that you've gotten to know a little bit over the past couple of weeks, right? Yeah, and she's from Australia. You know, I always think some of your best podcast episodes is when you go off and, and explore something from a different area of the world, right? Like the southern crops or the Canadian crops. And so now, you know, we've got a lady coming from Australia. So that's exciting. That's right. I'm just excited to get another fantastic accent on the uh, Ag News Daily podcast. Yeah. Well, if you started learning your own accents, maybe you could just try some out Crikey. one day. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. Yeah. That's all I know in Australian. I think that would probably get you by through the through the bush, right, on your walkabout. <laughs> on my walkabout, assuming a dingo doesn't get my baby. <laughs> now, Elaine, how, how's the weather up there? You know, we did see a huge, huge rally today. Minneapolis Spring Wheat took off like a rocket because we saw some uh, some reports that the drought was continuing up there in wheat country. And give us an update. You're a South Dakota girl. How do things look up in South Dakota, North Dakota? They look deeply depressing, Mike, as yeah. they have done for about the past month. Um, it's been really grim for, yeah, it's about, you know, in Memorial Day is when I really started to notice it and really noticed that things were going to be bad. Um, but it is Thursday, so Thursday mornings we get the new numbers from the UNL's Drought Monitor website. And officially, North Dakota is 99.9% of it is covered in some sort of a color on that Drought Monitor map. And their D2 drought, they went from 40% of their state in D2 drought to 47%. And 25%, so a quarter of the state, is in D3 drought or worse. And South Dakota's sort of similar uh, performance over the past week. There is 90% of the state shows some color. And the D2 percentage went up from 20% last week to 31% this week. Uh, so Iowa also has about 45% covered in yellow on the drought monitor map. And going back to your comments about spring wheat, you know, lest we think that this is just a thing that could be solved by importing some hard red spring wheat from Canada, I should point out that there is drought also in Saskatchewan and Manitoba where they're growing their spring wheat and Durham. So, so Elaine, it's a real deal. It's a real deal. And we've seen 
substantial demand for the high-protein wheat really throughout the year. Feed wheat's really been under pressure, but the world has wanted, and and American millers have have wanted, high-protein wheat. What happens, given the drought that's expanding in Canada, given the drought? I saw some pictures on Twitter of some uh, spring wheat in Montana. They were just turning cows out on. It wasn't worth even bailing. They were just going to let the cows graze off what was left and... Well, because, P.S., there's nothing else for them to graze because the pastures are terrible, too. But, yeah, continue. Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> let's keep the cows around and, and let them graze the wheat. So what happens if we do start to run out of this high-protein wheat? What's our substitute? Is there a substitute grain? No. Um, so I'll, I should also point out that you're, we're receiving harvest reports out of Kansas this time of year, and they are, for the second year in a row, seeing pretty disappointing proteins, too. So um, I saw a report, I'm sorry, I forget who it was from, that the statewide average is expected to be 11.5% protein. So that's low. Ordinarily, you'd expect to see 12% protein coming out of Kansas, in which case the U.S. millers would then be able to blend that in with the spring wheat to get, you know, the protein they need for bread products or whatever. Uh, failing that, uh, the alternatives are importing it, honestly, for or changing recipes. I mean, I don't, I don't know okay. to what degree Miller's can just completely change a recipe or, or change their products. But for some things, I suspect they're going to be looking outside of the U.S. They would ordinarily look to Canada, but like I mentioned, they have drought there too. So I think um, that's that's the options. So now here's my question. Looking at the markets, looking on a run like today, and we saw it really in all wheat contracts, but of course driven by spring wheat, um, is this a point to get bullish? I mean, after a 36, 39 cent run in Minneapolis spring wheat, 23 cents in Chicago, is it worth getting long here as a speculative position? Or right. how do you treat it when you get a right. huge rally day is- like this? This is tricky, right? A month ago, the trade seemed obvious to me, right? You, you go along. There's a drought out here. Mm-hmm. But you're right that after you've already experienced this run-up and you feel like there's already getting to be this huge speculative uh, participation because everybody's reading the headlines and piling on to this, um, when do you start to call the top? Well, and this is not, I mean, my journalist hat, right? I'm supposed to be a co-host and you're not interviewing me as an analyst, but I will say... No, yeah, well, you're wearing two hats. It's a Sherlock okay, Holmes okay. hat. goes both directions. Um, you know, and I want to look into this some more. This is an idea I had, and I don't know the answer to this, but I get the sense that most of the people who grow spring wheat in Durham, they tend to be folks who maybe own the land and they're growing that crop in a rotation but they're not necessarily growing it, you know, to make a profit because nobody planted spring wheat this year with the intention of making a profit right. to begin with, right? So these folks can afford to lock up whatever they do harvest in a bin. They can afford to keep it off the market almost indefinitely. Huh. So this, under ordinary, in a different market, in a, in a more widespread market that wasn't, you know, choked into this small geographical region and this relatively small number of growers – you would start to think this, that this gets toppy. But because of the mechanics of it, I, you know, I think it could continue to be pretty wild for a long time. I mean, you look back to 2008, which is mm-hmm. not really an analogous scenario, but uh, spring wheat did go to $24 back then. Yes. Yeah, yes. I saw somebody posted a, maybe it was Darren Newsom, uh, posted a chart on Twitter that was like, how high can spring wheat go? And it was a chart stretching back 15 or 20 years. So it had the $24 uh, top yeah. there in 2008. And, you know, 
Seven, where'd we close? 740, something like that. That looks pretty reasonable compared to 24 (laughs) bucks. Yeah, yeah, we we can go run a long way here. The lower end of the range. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we we had that news. Obviously, that was, I mean, on ag Twitter, on trading Twitter, that was really the the dominant story. But we also had news coming out of our uh, our exporters today. And... Break that down for us. What do we see for inspections and shipments? How did it look? Uh, sales. So net sales of wheat were actually pretty good this week, 492,000 metric tons, a lot of that going to Mexico. Um, and that's all wheat. So that might help to explain part of why the Chicago wheat contract and the KC wheat contract you know, also were willing to go up by double digits today, even though you know their limited blendability with the spring wheat that we already talked about. Uh, corn export sales were sort of disappointing, 316,000 metric tons, which is a 40% drop week on week. And soybean export sales, 312,000 metric tons, which is okay, given the fact that our past progress of soybean sales is already so bullish. Right. Now, at which point, we, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I haven't heard a lot of cancellations coming out of China yet. Have there been many that, that I just missed? No, I didn't see any in this week's report. Any of okay. um, So yeah, so, so far so good. What's the Brazilian farmer doing? Are they just hanging on to everything that massive bean crop that we were so nervous about earlier this year? Well, I think I mean you guys reported on that. Was it last week that that they are uh, much less sold than they ordinarily are at this time of year? Is that still correct? Yeah, I mean that was Let's the last see. I heard. I was wondering if you had any new insights. No, I mean I think it's pretty much dependent on the on the real, right? And I yep. haven't looked at that. I'll I'll pull up that chart right now. The real is flat. It has been flat all month for the past two months, basically since their since the the you know scandal with their president yes. came to light. So it's it's really just treading water. So I would say if that if those decisions are depending upon the currency, nothing has changed there to spur action one way or the other. Okay, they're probably still a little nervous. The charges were brought yesterday against President Michel Temer. Now we'll see whether or not they actually begin a trial, because this this was interesting to me, and I guess it's similar to the way we do things here. But uh, the prosecutors bring the charges, and then the lower house of Congress gets to decide whether or not they try him on these charges. <laughs> and, that's interesting. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. So as of yesterday, one of the... Uh, the speakers for their coalition had said, no, we've got almost 300 votes in a 516-seat House. We will keep him from being tried. And then the prosecutors say, well, we're probably going to bring fraud. We're going to bring racketeering. We're going to bring obstruction of justice charges. And the uh, the speaker kind of backed around. He goes, well, we can keep him from getting, you know, maybe one or two of these trials. I don't know if our guys are going to be willing to stand up and vote against having all of these trials. Oh, my. So, yeah. Yeah, just. Just a mess down there in Brazil, politically speaking. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, politically speaking, but also, of course, there are ties into when you've got a mercantilist setup like that, where you can buy favors from the government. JBS, the large packing company, has been embroiled in this from the get go almost. And uh, it was expected or it is expected that uh, they will call a shareholder meeting tomorrow to discuss getting rid of the Batista family uh, from the board. So they will remain controlling shareholders, but possibly kick them off the board to, I I would imagine, at least just help separate the company a little bit from the actions of 
Jose I was going to ask if, if you if you knew you know what percentage of the shareholders that family owned, but you said that they would remain controlling shareholders. That's the way it sounds today. It doesn't sound like they're going to be forced to sell any of their shares because they are controlling shareholders through their investment company, JNF Investimentos. I see. And JNF, I believe, owns I think it's sixty percent. I see. Not so easy to force out then. Right, exactly. So it's going to be interesting, but I imagine that that those boys, they have given up most of their titles. You know, Josley was uh, CEO. One was president, one was chairman, and they've both surrendered their titles as of now. All they have left are board seats. So we'll see. Okay, and I was I was mistaken. Let's see. Um you know, this is probably just a failure of my imagination or a sign of my lack of ambition, but I always wonder when folks are in positions like that and they have that much money, you know, wouldn't you rather just sell out and go sit at your beach villa right. in Brazil and enjoy yourself for the rest of your life? Well, one of the challenges there, Elaine, is Josely Batista has fled Brazil. Uh, oh. He fled on the company jet because okay. the prosecutors were closing in. So he is ensconced in some uh, luxury high rise in Mon Manhattan. But uh, yeah, mm -hmm. same question. You know, yeah. boys, hey, we're worth a couple billion dollars. This is getting to be kind of a pain in my back. Let's just let's just let this one go and, and retire. You'd think. I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, I don't run in those circles. So, yeah, well, not yet, Elaine. Right. OK. Yeah. We're, you know, one of these days we will. Right. All right. Well, I want to get your thoughts on the market. So I want to change things up a little bit. Well, I'm going to go through and I'm going to read the closes. And then uh, you and I are going to chit chat for just a couple minutes. And then we are going to have a phone discussion with Emma Weston, the Australian friend of Elaine's and co-founder of AgriDigital. And uh, we're going to talk about new technology moving the world of agriculture. It's going to be fun, isn't it, Elaine? I'm really looking forward to this. I'm going to learn a lot, I know. Yes, me too. Me too. All right, well, let's kick it off. Let's get this out of the way. Let's look at the markets. A lot of green on the screen today. We've got some movement in the corn pit. July, old crop corn closed up three cents, finished the day at 3.59 and three quarters. December corn up three and three quarters, closed the day at 3.80 even. In soybeans, July contract, old crop beans up one and a half, finished at 9.15 and a half. November beans up three cents, closed the day at 9.24 and three quarters. In the wheat pit, Chicago wheat, July contract up 23 cents closed at 480 and a quarter December contract up 20 and a quarter cents closed at 515 and a half as we take a look over at the world of meat the August live cattle contract climbed today 87 and a half cents to close at 116.50 the October live cattle contract up a dollar 32 and a half finished the day at 114.97 and a half in feeder cattle August feeders up 77 and a half cents closed at 147.17 and a half September feeders up 80 cents finished the day at 147.20 in hogs, the July lean hog contract really getting close to that $90 mark, up $1.55, closed at $89.47.5. The August contract up $1.27.5, finished the day at $80.75. In the world of dairy, July class 3 milk contracts down $0.13, cents, closed at $15.69. The deferred August contract down $0.21, cents, closed the day at $16.39. Now, Elaine... We saw big movement in feed grains, in feed wheat particularly today, but uh, we saw upside in corn, and we saw upside in meat. 
we saw upside in, in everything but dairy. Is the investment world getting interested in commodities again? I think broadly speaking, we could say yes, because our big benchmark commodity market, we're going to call crude oil, right? And that mm-hmm. sort of seems to have bottomed out. And if you get a, a, a large opinion from a large number of speculative traders that crude oil is bottomed out and we should start buying commodities again, yeah, that can carry over into everything. Sure. And the dollar's down today. I mean, it, it makes sense. Okay. It makes sense. And crude, where do you see crude moving from here, Elaine? What's what's your oh. thoughts? Are we ever going to get drivers driving enough to soak up this massive supply of, uh, of gasoline? Mm, not necessarily. I mean, and it's not even like the gasoline supplies. I think there could be certainly more variability in that. But the overwhelming supplies of the raw crude oil that keeps getting pumped out of Canada and the U.S. specifically I mean, OPEC's games are not working anymore. That mm-hmm. that that ship has sailed. All right. Well, Elaine, what do you say? Should we throw it over to Emma Weston and uh, learn a little bit more about AgriDigital? Yes, I'm. Yes, let's do it. Let's learn about this. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, as promised, we are heading down under this afternoon, and we are talking to Emma Weston, co-founder and CEO of AgriDigital. Now, Emma. AgriDigital is trying some new things, or at least adapting technology for use in agriculture. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on with AgriDigital? Yeah, thanks very much, Mike, and thanks, Elaine, as well. It's such a pleasure to be on the show. Um, So at AgriDigital, we really have a mission of digitizing the agricultural supply chain. There's a number of problems that we see in our supply chains globally, And before we can actually really tackle those problems, we have to tackle the major problem, which is that agriculture is the least digitized industry in the world. So we're still working mainly with Excel, pen and paper, and that's simply not going to be good enough for some of the emerging new technologies and opportunities that are coming our way in agriculture. So we've effectively built a platform, which is a commodity management platform for grains so so far, but we're introducing caution later this year and livestock and horticulture next year, hmm. whereby we connect the farmer all the way through to the consumer. So we take the good post-farm gate with the farmer and bring that all the way through to the consumer and providing the transactional platform in a digital form for all of the participants in the supply chain. Okay, Emma, I love it. I've I've always loved the concept of of, you know, adding more technology into these transactions. But now back up a second because I think is it correct that you are a farmer? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So what do you, tell us about what do you farm in in Australia? Yeah, okay. So my husband and I run a grain farm in Australia, um up in the the central west of New South Wales. So I'm actually currently in Sydney as we're talking today, but our farm is around about seven hours drive away um, by car. So we farm wheat primarily, uh, broadacre farmers, but last year we were farming chickpeas. Yeah. You know, Mike and I were talking earlier on the podcast about we have a drought going on here in the U.S. So you might might have an opportunity to to export some of your high-protein wheat to the U.S., that's uh, that's always something we're obviously on the lookout for um, is you know good opportunities. But I think uh, I think the U.S. will will probably get through this year is is my feeling. I, I hope uh, so. Yeah, I, I hope so for you guys too. Okay, but this is really good that you have. I mean that you have the 
you understand the viewpoints of the farmers who you are going to eventually be asking to use the technology that AgriDigital is putting out there. I mean, so when I hear you uh, talk about digitizing transactions, selling grain or any other ag product through a digital platform, I think, you know, even 10 years ago, folks were kind of trying to do this on the Internet with some Internet grain sales, and there was a huge reluctance of the major grain companies specifically, they, they were hugely reluctant to participate in that because as things stand now, they have sort of captive bushels, right? They know that they call up the farmers on the telephone with their pad and paper, but that is their competitive advantage. If you open it up digitally, doesn't that um, allow more competition? And, you know, how, how does AgriDigital plan to, to push back against that inherent reluctance in the industry? Yeah, so it's such an interesting question, Elaine, and I think that um, that in some ways you're absolutely correct. So I've also been involved in online marketplaces and exchanges before, and the way that we decided to evolve AgriDigital was to do it quite differently. We actually don't want to take away necessarily from how the, the, the sale of a particular commodity is conducted at the moment, whether that's done through consultants, brokers, directly between a farmer and a buyer, whether indeed it is on an online exchange, that actually doesn't matter from an agri-digital perspective. So the marketplace can still um, evolve and the liquidity out there will still be uh, forming the way that the liquidity forms between buyers and sellers. But the transactional space itself is what we really wanted to attack. So in some ways, you could call that the unsexy part of agriculture. It's all of the contracts, the receivables and the delivery information, payments, invoices, all of the transactional bedrock that actually moves a commodity in terms of not just the physical movement, but the data movement of that commodity through the supply chain. And we want to do that because we really want to focus on three problems. One is payment security for the seller. The second is ensuring that buyers have adequate access to supply chain finance in order to acquire that commodity. And thirdly, we obviously want to look at how we can use that amazing amount of data that we have out there so that we can expose that to a consumer and we can get paddock to plate transparency. So now I imagine kind of coming back to Elaine's point, most of the established players in the grain trade today are going to say, our system works for me. We don't need to be making any changes. Our pad and paper has gotten, gotten us this far. So who do you predict or who do you anticipate will be the initial user of the agri-digital platform? Who's your key first uh, your prime movements? Yeah, so interestingly enough, what's evolving in Australia and also the interest that we're getting out of Canada and the U.S. actually is with that first buyer of the commodity from the farmer. It is. So it may it is. Yeah, it is. It may not be the, the tier one multinationals, the Cargills, the Louis Dreyfuses, the Bungies of the world, but there is a really significant second and third tier of um, accumulators of grain and other commodities, whether they're feedlots, dairies, mills, you know, mum and dad operations that currently don't have access to really good transactional software at, at a, on a SaaS basis. So, you know, cheap as chips type basis um, on a per tonnage rate. So this puts them at a disadvantage to these large multinationals in terms of their ability to compete effectively because they can't transact effectively. That is so cool. That's fantastic that 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 they're finding, you know, you're finding some folks who are really excited about this. And Emma, I'm going to bring up the word. I'm going to I'm going to say the word that, you know, gets everybody so excited about agri-digital or at least it got me excited about it when I first heard it. Bitcoin, right? 
so Mike and I, we, you know, work in the ag market space and we watch the price of grain and we get to, you know, read the headlines about Bitcoin. I don't know if Mike, Mike, do you own any Bitcoin? Um, no. And I kick myself about it all the time I because I, I was like this close to, you know, buying a couple Bitcoins when they were at, I don't know, three, four hundred dollars. But, oh, it's going to fade yeah. away. And now they're, you know, two thousand, three thousand. Oh, yeah. So, no, right. it's a sore spot. Thanks for bringing it up, Elaine. <laughs> yeah, I suspect that we and, and a lot of the Ag News Daily podcast listeners are in the same this same situation that we think it sounds so cool. And Mike, you know, I have this libertarian bent, like I mm-hmm. love the idea of the blockchain technology, but it, it sounds cool, but it never seemed to be very practical. Like when in my life am I ever really going to use a Bitcoin? But Emma, what you have done with AgriDigital, and you should be the one to explain this, is you have found that you have you're using the blockchain technology that sort of is behind the Bitcoin phenomenon. You're using that in AgriDigital. That is the digital platform. Or maybe maybe I should just let you explain how AgriDigital is using a blockchain platform. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, can we start even a little bit more basic? So if we've heard of Bitcoin, but we haven't, we're not all that familiar with the background of it. What is blockchain? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. And I'm going to try and provide a really simple answer and a quick answer for everyone, because, of course, there's whole conferences going around (laughs) um, the world on what is blockchain and the uses of blockchain. But because we raised Bitcoin um, and I'm sure so many of your listeners have um, some kind of passing familiarity with Bitcoin, we actually don't work directly with Bitcoin. But you're right. We work with the technology that sits behind Bitcoin and that's blockchain. So what is blockchain? In some ways, it's just a really simple way of thinking about it is it's the accounting system for Bitcoin. So we've taken that way of recording the transfer of value of one Bitcoin to another from you know one person to another. We've taken that piece of technology, that accounting um, ledger, if you like, that recording system, and we've put it to a new use case now. And that use case is the agricultural supply chain. So. Blockchain itself is actually just a way of recording information um, across a uh, a ledger in a way that everybody who has access to that ledger, so everybody on the network, can see that that particular transaction has occurred. Not necessarily what the particulars of that transaction are, but they can see that something has occurred. And they can then use that as a verification tool. Um, So why is that important? Well, for example, when we're looking at the change of title of a good, so when something, uh, let's say a load of wheat has been sold from a farmer through to a buyer, we would like to know that 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 first buyer has absolute title to that particular wheat so that they can finance it or indeed they can on-sell it or process that. Um, At the moment, we don't have that transparency uh, within our supply chains. So what can happen is that from time to time, that first buyer could be using that wheat or processing it or on selling it before they've actually even paid the farmer. And that can cause problems down the chain. So what we're really looking at from a blockchain perspective is a simple recording system. And it's a recording system that's a special kind of database because you can add a transaction, but you can never modify or delete it. So it's a permanent and immutable record. And I'm just going to pull up there just in case you want to dig into anything. And then I'll kind of talk specifically about what we're doing. Perfect. So now this is this is kind of where I was hoping we would go with this conversation, because it is fascinating. The the 
blockchain the ledger, the distributed ledger that is blockchain, if I am going to use the agri-digital platform and I have a feedlot and I want to go and purchase grain from several nearby farmers at harvest time and I want to schedule delivery for thus and such, um, how how do they see it? I guess how does the mechanics work for the farmer, the initial seller of the grain? Yeah, so in terms of blockchain, really, um, it just becomes the plumbing. It's a bit like the Internet. You know, you don't see the Internet transaction, but we see um, the interactions that we're having with people on the Internet or with companies. And really, it's the same with blockchain. If we think of the Internet as just a way to transfer information from one computer to another, a blockchain is a way of transferring value, something of value from one computer to another or one person to another. So there's nothing necessarily to to see and go and interrogate in the blockchain itself, but we can actually take information off the blockchain and expose that through an application. So um, just like a normal website in some ways, so the farmer can actually be sure that they have been paid um, and that that money is sitting in either their bank account or a digital wallet would be one way of looking at it. And the buyer can be sure that they actually own that grain, that they can put it down the cow's throat. Um, eventually, that will get to a consumer who would be able to look um, and create an authentic food story and say, well, I bought this meat. This meat was grain fed. You know, that grain came from this farm and it was treated in this way. And all of that data with respect to the transaction process um, the production, the processing and the transport of that good can be held and then exposed via the blockchain. But you don't actually have to go into the blockchain itself. It gotcha. just becomes a, an application that sits on top of the blockchain. So I'm just looking at my agri-digital portal to see these yep. things. And then I know that I can trust it because it's built on that blockchain technology. That's right, because okay. we... At AgriDigital, once the transaction is there, we provide the means for recording that transaction, but we have no way and no one else has any other way of um, tampering with that information once it's been recorded. Huh. That's cool. So, Emma, how soon can an American farmer use the AgriDigital portal or, or can they already? Yeah, so that's a great question. We actually uh, just have effectively opened up international ports to add on to what we'd created from Australia. And we're looking to move into the U.S. next year. So effectively, yes, a farmer in, in the States or a buyer in the States could use AgriDigital now. Um, but we'd like to think that next year there's going to be a lot more support that we can offer on the ground support um, in the U.S. So um, we'd certainly be interested if anybody would like to trial the product or look at doing a pilot. Um, both We have both the capability of running um, a blockchain pilot or just the just a, a kind of a normal database technology and we can do both in parallel because we recognize this is new technology it has lots of benefits but you know everybody's on a journey with how they use this and so sometimes it feels good to run things in parallel um, and not have to just kind of opt for blockchain straight away so now yeah. how how long has agridigital been in use in australia and is it is it growing are people seeing value yeah, so we commercialized this year. We're a pretty young company. Um, we've been around for not quite two years, um, obviously in a really heavy product build, taking all of the, you know, the vast industry knowledge that we had, combining it with our technical expertise to build out this platform. We have around about 2%, 3% market share um, in Australia at the moment. And 
our main target audience is that first buyer of a commodity. So at the moment, we're onboarding one buyer a week. Um, every time a buyer comes on board, we they bring around about 200 to 2,000 growers with them. So our grower base of users is also growing really rapidly. And That's since, cool. And since it is software as a service, that initial buyer is making the investment. Is there a subsequent use fee or, or does anything change for the seller, the initial grower? Yeah, so for the farmer, it's um, effectively view only and limited use. And so they could just create a couple of contracts if they wanted to. But mostly what most farmers want to do is actually view documentation. They want to see that the contract has occurred. They want to view their payment, their delivery information. And all of that comes free um, to the farmer. Okay. Now, we don't need to take up a whole lot more of your time, but I just, you know, I'm thinking big here. I think that AgriDigital is going to be aiming for world domination shortly. And I think that because I think I told you, Emma, I, I've spent some time in Africa where the trust between ag buyers and ag consumers is absolutely zero. Well, not zero, but it's pretty close to zero, right? They just don't have the legal systems to really enforce contracts a lot of times. So I think... You know, it seems to me that that your company is so well positioned to get into a lot of developing markets where trust is is absent. I mean, I'm you know, I'm so glad to hear that we're finding you're finding success uh, with these initial buyers, even in developed markets. But I mean, do, do you have I assume you have plans for world domination or, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we certainly see ourselves as a global company from the very beginning. And, you know, we want to have global supply chains where we can connect farmers with, you know, any farmer anywhere with any consumer anywhere, ultimately. So um, the the big kind of opportunity that we see uh, in the developing world is a little different to the developed markets. So in the developed markets, the, the platform that we have is, you know, so good for taking cost out of the supply chain um, and being able to, you know, provide security within the supply chain. But in the developing world, it's a little different. Um, you know, we see great opportunities for being able to leapfrog a lot of the development process we've had to go through, you know, in the Western world by actually implementing technology that is, um, you know, at ground zero that enables farmers very early on to get closer to an ultimate consumer and have power in that conversation. That's yes. the perfect word for it. Leapfrog the development process. I like that. Yeah, and it's you don't need trust in the system because you can already verify, right? I mean, it's just it's right there. Trust is That's irrelevant because, yes, I have been paid. Here it shows it. Absolutely. And because you don't have to know uh, or do any due diligence on who you're selling to, um, the, re the reality is with AgriDigital, that good will not pass uh, to that buyer unless that buyer pays for it at the same time. So we're trying to approximate or get as close as possible to buying a coffee from your local barista where, you know, they're not going to hand that over and say, don't worry about it, pay me in a week, right? right. They, they want to get paid exactly when they hand that coffee over to you, and it should be no different for our farmers. Wow. And, you know, you look ahead, Elaine, you're looking at the developing world. I'm looking at other institutions that exist to force trust into being. And the big one that jumps out at me is clearinghouses, like commodity market exchanges, like the CME, the CBOT. Oh, yeah. These are entire institutions that exist because we cannot have that trust between co-parties that we don't know. Whereas here, using this blockchain technology, all of a sudden... That trust is inherent in the deal. 
This is That's fantastic. Exactly right, Mike. Yeah. And and I've got to say that CME um, and CBOT, the guys there, they're they're really onto this. They they realize that blockchain is going to change everything and they are investing very heavily in how they're going to use blockchain and how it can actually enhance and grow their business as well. You know, I've been really impressed with the approach that they've taken. Very cool. Well, Emma, we know it is it is six o'clock in the morning in Sydney, Australia. We got you out of bed or or actually we probably <laughs> just gave you a little break from the work you're already doing to have a conversation with us. We really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and telling us more about AgriDigital. And Elaine, I'm sure you are still brimming with questions. Is that right? Well, sure. But mostly, I mean, just congratulations, Emma, and good luck with the success of AgriDigital. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to talk with you both. Well, folks, that was Emma Weston, CEO and co-founder of Agra Digital, and we will post a link on the Ag News Daily website later today. Elaine, how fast is your brain working right now, thinking about all the advantages that a, a technology like that can give you? I am just trying to imagine how fast it's going to take before I'm selling my grain with Bitcoin. I mean, she said they're not Bitcoins, but I mean, I really want to see this happen. I've wanted to see digital grain sales happen, like I said, 10 years ago when folks were trying to make it happen. But now that that blockchain technology is there, I mean, I think it's real. This this is very exciting. It is very exciting. And, you know, I look at the way agriculture embraces technology. And, and Emma said it, we're, we're the slowest to do it worldwide. Mm. But once we find a sexy piece of technology, Ag can devote significant resources to making it work pretty quickly. You know, but we think of drones in 2013. You know, a drone was 50 grand and it had a crappy camera on it. Today, Elaine, what's a drone cost? A decent one. A thousand bucks? Oh, 900 bucks. Yeah. 900 bucks. And everybody's got one. And the cameras are getting better. Now we're adding new technology. I mean, that's four years. I don't think it's going to take long for us to be utilizing blockchain in some form in grain sales. I think you're right. That is exciting. Eliminating counterparty risk. You know, you think back to when, uh, oh, was it Verisun, the ethanol company? <gasps> oh, golly, that back takes me back. Back in 2000 and what year was that, nine? I have a terrible memory. I wouldn't have even remembered if you hadn't brought up that name, Mike. You're good at this. Yeah. I mean, you're so right. That's the perfect example. Exactly. I mean, there were a bunch of people. They'd sold a pile of grain to Verisun. And now one thing that I think would be worthwhile to have Emma on again is what happens in a situation like an elevator where I've sold my grain to the elevator. They're counting on those bushels, but I've sold it for, you know, February delivery, but it's already sitting in there. My understanding was that was what happened with Verisun. I don't know oh. if blockchain provides much. I don't know. That's. Oh, no, you're right. We'd have to have another conversation with her, but I think we should. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I got the impression or I get the impression maybe a previous conversation is that, you know, they're intending to come to the U.S. and, and press some flesh and, and, you know, try and make things happen here. So maybe she'll be, you know, on on the continent continental united states sometime soon we should talk to her then yes we should get a steak and uh and talk blockchain yeah uh, yeah i suppose delaney will be back and she can ask some questions you know she was very kind to let me take this guest host position today but well yeah we're, we're very excited to have you Elaine. you're a great voice you're a great thinker you think outside the box and that's what we need as we look ahead to a couple you know challenging years in agriculture oh yes Oh, yes. The drought. I'll look out my window at the drought again. Man. So now you haven't started calving yet. Is that right? You've got a little ways to go? 
We, uh, yeah, we do all fall calving, but yeah, it should uh, be more than a month, but yeah, eventually here, yeah, yeah. All right, do you still have enough grass? Well, we um, have fairly low stocking rates, fortunately, so I think we will limp along and be okay. Okay. Um, especially if we can, you know, graze some stubble, if soybeans get off early, that kind of thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's good, Elaine. We will all be pulling for you. And if folks would like to buy a copy of your fantastic book, Mastering the Grain Markets, where can they go to do that? That is something you can do right now. You don't have to wait for Bitcoin to come around. Uh, that is absolutely available to you at Amazon.com. You can go to MasteringTheGrainMarkets.com is another good way to get there. Perfect. And they can check out Cubs Den every other week on DTN. And uh, when's the next uh, column going up? Well, next week. And uh, I'm sure, you know, this has given me lots of ideas. I suspect that next week's column will be related somehow to the conversation we have had here today. Perfect, folks. Check it out. Go to uh, DTNPF.com and uh, find it. With all of that, Elaine, I'm thinking maybe it's time to let the people go. What do you think? I guess so. I'm reluctant to give up my guest host position, but I guess I better do it. Thank you for the chance. We'll bring you back, Elaine Cobb. Thanks so much. 